Good morning, church. Oh, good morning, church. <laughs> Please stand for the reading of God's word. Today's scripture will be found in Proverbs 1-7, which is on page 304 of the Bibles in the seatbacks. And if you do not have a Bible, please accept this as a gift from Northridge. Hear the word of the Lord. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. Fools despise wisdom and instruction. Thus says God's word. Let's pray together for what we're about to hear. Father, thank you so much for your word. It's living, and God, it's sharper than any two-edged sword. It divides soul and spirit, joints and marrows, is discerner of the thoughts and intents of our hearts. And so, God, we pray that you would just open us up to hear, to understand, to gain insight, to gain instruction, to gain wisdom. Uh, from your word this morning, Lord, we are desperate for that. I pray that you would do a, a supernatural work in all of our, uh, in all of us, Lord, to hear it. To hear it as it was intended to be heard, as the word of God. Lord, I pray that you would help me to be able to speak in a way that, Lord, brings glory and honor to you. And, and Lord, that, that instructs your people, God, not from any wisdom of my own, for I have none, Lord, that you are the wisdom of God that was revealed in Christ. And we thank you for that, and we pray that that's what the people would receive today. God, I also want to lift up our children as they go to their classes, Lord. We, we pray a blessing on them, a blessing of hearing, of understanding the gospel of Jesus Christ. We pray that their lives will be transformed in the hearing. You tell us in your word that faith comes to us by hearing and hearing by the word of Christ. And so we pray that today that is exactly what they would hear is the word of Christ. And their hearts would be drawn by the Holy Spirit to that day, closer and closer to that day where they put their trust in you and believe in you as their Savior, Lord. And so we thank you for that. We pray that you would just uh, let us uh, rest in your presence now as we hear the word. In Jesus' name. Amen. Boys and girls, ages uh, kindergarten through fifth grade, you're dismissed to go to your classes. The rest of you can be seated. Um, last week, you may recall, there was very few of you here because uh, heaven dumped a lot of ice on us, if you remember that. And so it was, it was I, I, I'm thankful for those that were here, but no judgment to those who couldn't brave the storm. I know it was kind of treacherous out there for some of you, and so, but we're glad to have a lot of you back. Um, but last week, if you listened online or if you hadn't listened yet, we began a brand new series. We're gonna, it's gonna occupy our time for a while. And it, we're examining the book of Proverbs. And last week we looked at chapter, uh, one, verses one through seven. And we saw Solomon's introduction to the book of Proverbs. And in that introduction, we learned that Proverbs has great value to us. And, the, and it's the value to know wisdom and instruction, to understand words of insight, to receive instruction in wise dealing, in righteousness, justice, and equity, to give prudence to the simple, to give knowledge and discretion to the youth. And, and in verses 5 and 6, we were summoned by Solomon to hear and increase in learning, to obtain guidance, to understand a proverb and a saying, the words of the wise, 
and their riddles. And one of the things we focused on a lot last week was that in light of the New Testament, in light of the New Covenant, in light of the, the finished work that Gabriel just spoke of, of Christ's work on the cross, his resurrection, his ascension to power, we grappled with the fact that when we engage the book of Proverbs, we're not merely pondering the collected wisdom of ancient Jews. We're not merely pondering the the wisdom of Solomon, even though he was the wisest man ever to live with the exception of Jesus. But what we're doing, and and the only thing that's going to make being in Proverbs for the next several weeks beneficial to us is if we realize that we're coming here to receive revelation into the wisdom of the ultimate son of David, who is not Solomon, but is Jesus Christ. And so last week I said, uh, one of the statements I made, is that the righteous commands of God and the law of God contained in the works of Moses, Genesis through Deuteronomy, display the perfection of God's holiness. When you see the rigors of those laws and commandments are laid out, you can say, you can honestly say, this is what God is like. This is the standard of God's righteousness and holiness. But Proverbs plays a similar role in the life of the believer. It shows us the glory of God's indisputable wisdom. Proverbs goes a step further, though, in that it shows us how this wisdom is to be applied to everyday decisions, everyday situations, and and it's so that we can flourish in our covenant with God. Now, in this sense, in that sense of Proverbs, it demonstrates the grace and the condescension of God towards his elect. How does it do that? Because think about this. God loves you so much that he gives you the book of Proverbs to show you how to practically, not just theoretically, not just in some kind of weird guru, you know, spiritual trance state, but how to practically prosper and live in happiness in this life. That's an amazing grace from the Lord, wouldn't you say? But he goes on and he shows us how to avoid the dangerous pitfalls that don't necessarily, they sometimes do, but they don't necessarily result from the things, the dangers out there. They they result from our own sin, our own folly, our own inexperience, our own corrupt desires. And and Proverbs is given to us to show us how to prosper in obedience to God and how to avoid those dangerous pitfalls. And when when we consider... God's wisdom, and which is what we're going to be doing over the next several weeks. When we consider God's wisdom, and we consider His wisdom as it's, as it's displayed for us so beautifully in creation. We consider how it's displayed for us so beautifully in the work of redemption by Jesus. When we consider His wisdom in the practical instruction that we find here in Proverbs, it's no wonder that, that Paul ends his 11, or, uh, yeah, 11 chapter, you know, kind of uh, uh, exposition of the doctrine of salvation in Romans like this. Romans 11.33, he says this, and can you hear, just hear the worship dripping off of this? Oh, the depth! Oh, the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments. How inscrutable are his ways. The book of Proverbs is meant not to tell us how to be good money, better money managers or better fathers and husbands and wives and mothers. The book of Proverbs is to leave us 
in a doxology where we say, Oh, the depth and the riches of the wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are His judgments and how inscrutable are His ways. That is why Proverbs is stuck right there in the middle of your Bibles. So you would be drawn to worship. Now last week we talked about this. Solomon concludes his introduction to Proverbs by telling us what the entry point is, what the threshold is, how you and I can access this unsearchable, inscrutable wisdom and knowledge. He tells us that wisdom is not obtained by us through diligent study alone. There is great value in diligent study. But if we, if we diligently study things, we, and that's it, we stop short. You know who were some of the most diligent studies in the Bible, in the, in the written record that, that is the Bible? The Pharisees. They, many of them had much of the New Testament, or the Old Testament rather, memorized. Anyone here can say that? That you have the majority of the Old Testament memorized? Of course not. But how did they do that? They did it by diligent study. And, and Jesus constantly pointed out to them that they had stopped too short. Because Solomon tells us in Proverbs 1-7 that the, the obtaining knowledge, obtaining wisdom can only be done in a living covenantal relationship with God himself. That's the only way to do it. He also in this verse distinguishes two types of individuals that over the next several weeks again will feature prominently as we study the book of Proverbs. Let's look at it one more time, this very lengthy text that I made Lee to read this morning. Proverbs 1.7, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge, but fools despise wisdom and instruction. What exactly is Solomon telling us here? He's saying that the fear of God is where knowledge originates. That it begins with the fear of God. What is knowledge? We actually, we talked about the knowledge of God and when we did our series a few months ago on, on the attributes of God, and I'm going to read the same definition I gave you then. Knowledge is the clear and certain perception of that which exists or of truth and fact. Knowledge is our perception of the connection and agreement or the disagreement and absurdity of our ideas. How do we know which of our ideas are good? How do we know which of our ideas are ridiculous? We know it through knowledge, through obtaining knowledge, through however means, experiment, whatever. But we learn that through obtaining knowledge. Now what Solomon is saying, and this may seem, to, especially if you have received a highly secularized education, this may be a mind blower to you to even embrace or believe. But Solomon is saying here that nothing can be known Outside of the fear of God. Now, uh, probably about 10% or less of you believe what I just said. So, because I'm a stubborn, stubborn, obstinate ox of a man, I'm going to repeat it. Solomon is saying that nothing can be known outside of the fear of God. 
Now, can I take, for the rest of you, the 90% that think that's absurd, you think of men like Stephen Hawking or men like Albert Einstein and people like that that have the reputation for great knowledge, may I please demonstrate the truth of what I just said? This world, can we at least agree on this, is unraveling right now. Anybody, anybody agree with me on that? The world is unraveling. And it's because this world is only unraveling because people who have no fear of God are telling us what the facts are. Am I right? The world is unraveling because people who have no fear of God before their eyes, as Romans says, are telling us what the facts are. What is real, what is false, what is true, what is untrue. This happens scientifically. This happens politically. This happens socially. This happens relationally, etc., etc., etc. But without a proper understanding of and reverence for God, you cannot trust their perceptions of reality to be even a little bit reliable. You cannot even you can't expect what they say to be fully or even remotely true. As creator, as the one who did all this, God's knowledge of every discipline of science is unassailable. Why? Because he engineered everything that exists. From the largest galaxies to the smallest subatomic particles, he engineered it. His knowledge of politics is perfect. Why? Because he's the perfect leader. He rules only with perfect justice, with perfect righteousness. And he knows, he doesn't have to fetch anybody's vote, he knows what lies within human hearts. He understands all social conditions and the remedies for all of those because as Acts 17 tells us, he made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth, having determined allotted periods and the boundaries of their dwelling place. He knows how the social world works. And may I remind you, especially if you're here and there's broken relationships, marriages, friendships, that he exhaustively knows What causes human relationships to thrive? He invented them. He declared way back in the garden, it was not good for man to be alone. And he was the architect of a helpmate that was suitable for him. He declared himself more than that. Outside of what we would think of as romantic relationships, he declared himself to be the personal friend of Abraham. The friend of Moses who he said, I I know him face to face. Jesus told his 12 disciples, I no longer call you servants, but I call you friends. For us, he declares his perfect love in the act of laying down his life. Greater love has no man than this, that a man lay his life down for his friends. But the fear of the Lord isn't only the trustworthy beginning of knowledge of what can be known, but also of wisdom. Psalm 111 verse 10 says this, The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. That sounds similar to 
Proverbs 1.7, doesn't it? Where we read that the fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. Those who practice it, the fear of the Lord, have good understanding. His praise endures forever. And this thought is also echoed again in Solomon's Proverbs. Proverbs 9.10. We read the exact same words. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. And knowledge of the Holy One is insight. Now, you and I might sometimes use the words knowledge and wisdom somewhat interchangeably, but there's important differences for us to be considered. Gave you the definition for knowledge, but we see that knowledge by its strictest definition is the understanding only of what is true. Now, we live in a world where people may believe anything they wish, some of it very good, some of it very foolish, but if, if what they believe doesn't find its basis in provable fact, it cannot truly be regarded as knowledge. Wisdom, on the other hand, is the right use or exercise of knowledge, the choice of commendable ends and of the best means to accomplish them. Wisdom is the faculty of judging what is most just, proper, and useful. It's the knowledge Uh, and use of what is best, most just, most proper, most conducive to prosperity and happiness. Wisdom, then, is knowledge implied. It takes what we know, what is factual, and it applies it to our life. Proverbs is telling us that the fear of the Lord doesn't merely lead to the acquisition of a set of facts or of obtaining some sort of data. That would be knowledge. But its message to us, Proverbs' message to us, is that the fear of the Lord leads us to know what is good, just, right, prosperous, and instructs us as how we can make the best use of what we have learned. Now, consider this new covenant promise in the old covenant. This is right in uh, in about the middle of Isaiah's writings. Isaiah 30, 21. And your ears shall hear a word behind you saying, This is the way, walk in it. When you turn to the right or when you turn to the left. Now what I want you to see is, this encapsulates what I'm trying to tell you today. The promise of this verse in Isaiah is that through the fear of the Lord, we will not only have the knowledge of which path to take, this is the way. But, we'll also be given wisdom concerning how to proceed forward. Walk in it. And that's what we're after in the book of Proverbs. We want to hear the voice of the Lord saying to us, this is the way, walk in it. Now that we've thought more deeply about the blessings that the fear of the Lord leads us into, wisdom and knowledge, we need to discuss the fundamental question, which some of you may have already been asking yourself, waiting for me to get to it. This is the question uh, that, that we're faced with. What do we mean exactly when we speak of the fear of the Lord. There's a lot of opinions, and there's a lot of anticipated responses. So let me deal with the first one first. A lot of times, if you're unfamiliar with the terminology, the fear of the Lord, or if you've heard it and never really considered what it means, you may wonder if we're supposed to stand in utmost terror as we think about God or attempt to approach God. Well, the only appropriate answer, you guys who know me well know me that I love to answer questions like this. The only appropriate answer to that honestly posed question is a very clear, totally accurate, 
yes and no. That's what it means, that we stand in abject terror of God. But it's also what it doesn't mean. Let me explain. For those of you who may be here this morning, and and there's no portion of my sermon this morning where I'll be more serious, for those of you who have not repented of your sins and believed in the gospel of Jesus Christ, there is not a more proper response to an encounter with the living God, with his word, than an undiluted abject dread and terror. That is the right response. When Isaiah encountered God in his holiness, in his temple, he did not stand there mouth agape going, wow, this is cool. How do we buy some fog machines and replicate this every Sunday? This is what he said. Woe to me. I'm lost. I'm undone. I'm unraveling. For I'm a man of unclean lips and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. What on earth prompted this response in Isaiah? It was this, he said, For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. In his uncleanness, the only proper response for Isaiah was dread, was abject terror. Well, that's, that's that mean Old Testament God, Mark. Move on to the New Testament. Shall I? Shall I move on to the New Testament? Where we see Jesus uttering these words from his holy lips. And do not fear those who kill the body but cannot kill the soul. Rather, Jesus, the Son of God, the Messiah says, fear him who can destroy both soul and body in hell. He's saying that the right response to God for the unrepentant is fear. It's terror. What Jesus describes here is the appropriate fear of the Lord on the, on the part of those who live daily and arrogantly under his unyielding wrath and judgment, which they will someday face in its fullness. But you know what? The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. Amen? The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. Amen? If you're still in your sin this morning, and you sincerely hear Isaiah's warning, if you sincerely hear Christ's warning, you will be granted wisdom and knowledge. The knowledge that you will gain is that your sins have separated you from God, and that every single day you live brings you closer to eternal flame. And the wisdom that comes to you in your fear of the Lord is the reality of God's resting upon you and the wise response to humbly cry out to Him for mercy, which He will not withhold from you. That's one side of the coin. Let's talk about the other side. For those who've already believed and repented, which I am assuming, hopefully rightfully, that that includes most of you, The fear of the Lord means something slightly different, similar but different. It's a matter of honor and reverence and respect for the Lord. Unyielding honor, reverence, and respect. When I was raising my children, we had an unscripted agreement. You guys can ask Cameron about this after the service if you want to. 
Um, he's doing the same thing, I believe, with his boys now. But we had an unscript, unwritten agreement. Because life is life, some misbehaviors that my children engaged in would be met with me with undeserved mercy. I would just let it go, let it slide. That's what parents do. And if you say you don't, you're a liar. So, um, just, you know, just, we would, we, but, but there was a difference between the, the minor misbehaviors of childhood and things like lying. Ooh, I hated lying. I hated intentional stomp your feet, scream your lungs out in Walmart defiance. I cannot handle that at all. Judge me if you must. And those things in the Sharp household, when there were four little boys there, would always result, always result in swift discipline. Now here's what I want you to understand. I wanted that swift discipline was designed so that my children would fear that consequence. I wanted them to have an absolute terror of the consequence if they left the way. The Bible says that. Book of Proverbs. We'll get there eventually. It says that stern discipline awaits him who leaves the way. It was my job as the dad to teach them that the word of God was true by demonstration. Y'all are leaving me hanging up here, okay? And yet, what I want you to understand is, while lying and outright defiance would always garner swift, unapologetic discipline, my consistent affection for my children, my absolute determination to provide for my children, consistently assured them that I loved them. When we would play on the floor and wrestle and, and do all kinds of goofy things and go play paintball and all the silly things that we did growing up, they knew that I would never stop loving them. As I answered their questions and instructed them in the word of God, they knew hopefully that I loved them. And the discipline that Ginger and I had to hand down sometimes was always followed by an affirmation of our love for them and even a prayer that they'd be granted grace to conform to God's will and avoid further discipline. And yet, no matter how deeply we loved them, which was not questionable by anyone, we would not compromise on our demand for compliance and honesty. And this is a picture of the fear of the Lord for believers. So many of us are so casual about defying the Lord. We have no fear of doing, hearing what His Word calls us to, hearing what you're called to from this pulpit, and totally disregarding it and doing what you would do in the strength of your will. And that just demonstrates an absolute lack of the fear of the Lord. We're to take great assurance in the unfailing love of God. Never question it. And yet daily tremble at the prospect of eliciting his displeasure. As I said, many Christians casually make excuses for their sin. 
just the way I am. I was born that way. I have red hair. I'm German. Whatever. And they take comfort in their sin. And yet, they come into a place like this and they confidently speak of the grace and love and of God. They sing louder than anyone about the grace and the love of God as though God were obligated to be merciful and gracious to you. But the fear of the Lord, what I want you to understand, produces a different response in our hearts. Let's turn again to Solomon. See what he says. He gives us the clearest definition in the Word of God. Proverbs 8.13 The fear of the Lord is hatred of evil. In all its forms, in all its manifestations, it is an absolute revulsion, rejection, and hatred of evil. And Solomon says, in this case, pride and arrogance, the way of evil and perverted speech, I hate it. Those who are walking in the fear of God daily make it their effort to know what God hates. Evil. He hates it. And they they turn from it. They avoid it before it takes root. And as Paul commands us in a couple of places, they put it to death if it does take root. By immersing themselves in the scriptures, God makes them increasingly sensitive to what he requires. Again, this is why we're in the book of Proverbs. This is the fear of the Lord that leads to knowledge. The fear of the Lord, listen to me carefully. There's many of you that are here, and I hate this. I'm saying this because I love you and care about you. The fear of the Lord, if you're trying to analyze yourself right now and say, do I walk in the fear of the Lord? The fear of the Lord is absolutely incompatible with an unread Bible. Three of you heard me. The fear of the Lord is absolutely incompatible with an unread Bible. The fear of the Lord is incompatible with a heart that doesn't cry out to Jesus daily to be refined by the indwelling Holy Spirit, to be made to live a life that reflects His holiness. The fear of the Lord, though, doesn't just lead to knowledge, knowledge of our sin. It leads to wisdom. As we're transformed by standing in the light of His countenance in the Word of God, we make decisions that are more informed by the gospel than by our depraved lusts. The nature of sin is to harden your hearts, not to humble them. That's the effect that engaging freely with sin, not walking in the fear of the Lord does, it hardens your heart. And David recognized this from the psalm we read during prayer, and he prayed that God would help him to properly walk in the fear of Yahweh. And he says it in typical Davidic beauty and poetry. And this should be our prayer daily. Psalm 86, 11. Teach me your way, O Lord, that I may walk in your truth. Now listen to this. Unite my heart to fear your name. What is he saying there? Unite my heart. He's saying that in his life, as in your life, there's all kinds of distractions. There's all kinds of voices. There's all kinds of opinions. There's all kinds of cravings that are calling to pull on different areas of your heart, different desires, different, different wishes, different, different, uh, uh, disagreements, different, you know, demands. All these things are tugging. And, and David is saying, God, unite my heart so that the only thing that motivates me is the fear of the Lord. 
cares when I'm mistreated if all I want is the fear of the Lord? Who cares if somebody's wealthier or healthier than me if I have the fear of the Lord? Unite my heart. Take all those strands going off in so many different directions and pull them to one thing, oh God. The fear of the Lord. Now, everybody take a deep breath. I'm not always this mean. Three quarters of the time. But most of the time, there's at least 25% of the time where I'm not this mean. But I want to assure you too that it would be a mistake to define the fear of the Lord only by what we hate and avoid. We'd get half the equation right. But when you get half an equation right, your life is 100% out of balance. Amen? So there's more to it. The Bible also portrays the fear of the Lord as occupying the positive side of the Christian life. Deuteronomy 13.4 is a perfect example of this. You shall walk after the Lord your God and fear Him and keep His commandments and obey His voice. And you shall serve Him, and I love this last part, and hold fast to Him. We see here that the fear of the Lord involves not only reverence and obedience, which we've already seen, but love and service and dependence on God. Regarding obedience, the fear of the Lord means not only to fear His judgment and wrath, as we've spoke about, but to grow in our aversion to displeasing Him when we flex our selfish wills. When we deny His sovereignty by our thoughts and by our actions, we are, we are to learn to fear doing that. Oh, listen to me, church, that we would meditate on what serious business this is. Paul warned us about quenching the Holy Spirit. He warned us about grieving the Holy Spirit within us. The living God, think deeply about this, has come to dwell in you if you're a believer and we should strive to honor His guiding and comforting presence by surrendering in obedience to Him, by walking in the fear of the Lord. Listen to how... The Apostle John in, in his first letter says this so eloquently. First John 2, 3 begins like this. And by this, we know that we've come to know him. How? How, John? How do I have a full assurance of my salvation? How do I know that I've come to know him? If we keep his commandments. Whoever says, I know him, but does not keep his commandments, is a liar. And the truth is not in him. But whoever keeps his word in him, truly the love of God is perfected. By this we may know that we are in him. Whoever abides in him ought to walk in the same way in which he walked. So that's obedience. Regarding love, Jesus similarly spoke of obedience offered to him as genuine, or as evidence of genuine love for him. He similarly said, like John said, he told his disciples, if you love me, You will keep my commandments. Love for God is evidenced only by the reverential fear of Him that results in obedience to His commandments. Regarding service, we're told in Psalms 2.11, Serve the Lord with fear. Rejoice with trembling. Now, notice here how service is connected to fear. 
Serve the Lord with fear and rejoicing with trembling. And let's be honest, doesn't that sound just a tiny bit contradictory to our ears? Doesn't it? Be honest. I, 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 don't, I don't ever say if Rochelle buys me a gift, I don't say, man, that made me so happy I was terrified, Rochelle. When my, when my wife said that nice thing about me, I was just so glad that I almost wept because I was so scared. Serve the Lord with fear. Rejoice with trembling. Jesus sheds incredible light on this, this principle in his parable of the talents. You remember that parable of the money that was handed out to three servants and they each were given different denominations and told to, to, uh, you know, gain an increase on those, on those, uh, those gifts. You may remember that the servant that was entrusted with only one talent buried it in the sand until the master returned. And what was his excuse for doing so? Do you remember? Let me read you his words verbatim. He said, Master, I knew you were a hard man, reaping where you did not sow, gathering where you scattered no seed. So I was afraid. And I went and I hid your talent in the ground. Here you have what is yours. Now listen, we pick on this guy. Took what the Lord in this parable had given him, buried it in the sand. But let's, let's not miss this. He got the fear part right, right? I knew who you were and I was afraid. But see, his fear was misplaced. He, he was to fear the master, but it was a misplaced fear. Fear of the master didn't motivate him to productivity. Instead, it motivated him to slothful inactivity. Matthew says this, in, 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 Jesus says this rather in Matthew twenty-five thirty, talking about the response of the master to this failure on behalf of this man. And cast the worthless servant into outer darkness. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. See, the other servants also knew what, what kind of a man the master was. But they invested their talents in hopes of serving their hard master well. You see the difference there? It motivated them to do something. And and maybe even perhaps to receive from him a generous reward. Which they did in fact receive. This is how Christians apply the fear of the Lord. We don't look to the Lord and say, oh we we can't manage his, his holiness, and so let's just bury everything, let's not try to do anything. No, we say, this is the kind of master I want with all of my heart to please. Dependence on God is also a demonstration of the fear of the Lord. There's, there's a great example of this in the Gospels as well. Do you remember when Jesus was walking on the water? Remember what happened? Peter said, if that's you, let me come to you. And he got out of the boat and he's walking on the water. And then he realized what a stupid thing he was doing. He saw the, he heard the wind, he saw the waves, he saw the lightning flash across the sky, and immediately he went down like Fraser. He went down like a rock to the bottom. And as Peter in his terror began to sink beneath the waves, what did he do? His hands reached out to clutch to Jesus! He was in fear! But he knew where to grab. He knew who to cry out to, Lord, I drown, save me! He was unwilling to let him go until Jesus walked him back to safety. 
See, it's that reverent dependence on Christ alone that will carry you through your battles with sin, with sickness, with loss, with rejection. It's a healthy fear to despair of the thought of, lo- of Christ losing his, his grip on you, his saving, his saving grasp rather on you. It's a, it's a, it's a, it's a healthy fear to, to despair at the thought of that. But here's the, the, the good reply to that. Though you may fear it sometimes at your worst, at your most treacherous moment, the truth is that as flaky as you often are, He will never let go of you if you are one of His. He'll never let go of you. It's the same reverent fear that causes you to fully depend on Christ that one day that's coming very, very soon. No matter how young, how old you are, it's coming very soon. When Christ takes your hand to carry you across the raging waters of the Jordan of this mortal life and into the promised land of heavenly glory that awaits you. It's that reverential, honoring dependence on Jesus. The fear of the Lord, what I want you to know, is a constant theme of Scripture. It's referenced in both the Old and New Testaments a lot. I mean, you'll find it over and over. And I hope after this message, every time you see it, you take note of it. From Genesis to Revelation, what Solomon wants us to know is that without the fear of Yahweh, this is why we're taking this week and guess what, next week also to talk about the fear of the Lord. Because Solomon wants you to know this, that without the fear of Yahweh as your starting point, Proverbs, and by extension the rest of the Bible also, holds no benefit to you whatsoever. You can read it. You can memorize it, you can try your darndest to apply it, but if you do not begin with the fear of the Lord, you will gain no benefit from the next bit of time that we're going to be in Proverbs. Though it's crammed full of divine and beneficial wisdom, all its guidance will bounce off the walls of our hardened hearts if they're not softened by submitting ourselves in fear and in trembling to the holy God who offers this treasury of Proverbs to us so freely. And so may God draw us back to the wonderful center of the Christian life where our love and our desire for God compel us to tremble reverentially before Him. Would you stand with me? I want to read one last scripture um, as we stand. And this is from Isaiah 66, one. And listen to what God is saying to Isaiah in this final chapter of Isaiah. He says, Thus says the Lord, Heaven is my throne. The earth is my footstool. What is the house that you will build for me? What is the place of my rest? All these things my hand is made. And 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 so all these things came to be, declares the Lord. Now, pause right there. He He's saying that, you know, what kind of service are you going to render? What kind of cathedral are you going to build? What, what are you going to do that's going to impress me? I made everything. But listen to this carefully. Listen carefully. Meditate on this all week long. We give you the family memory verse every week, but add this to it. Proverbs 66, 2. But this is the one to whom I will look. You want to get God's attention? This is the one to whom I will look. He who is humble and contrite in, in heart and spirit and who trembles, who trembles, who trembles at my word. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you so much 
for this invitation to return to the fear of the Lord, realizing that it is the beginning of wisdom, that it is the beginning of knowledge. Help us to take this moment right now, Lord God, not stop thinking for a moment about lunch, stop thinking about whatever's on TV this afternoon, God. Help us to examine our hearts and to ask hard questions. Are we walking in the fear of the Lord? Does our life demonstrate that? God, do we need to pray like David in Psalm 86? Unite our hearts, God. They're so distracted. They're so scrambled. Unite our hearts to fear your name. Help us to be those who tremble at your word. We love you, Jesus. As Natalie is uh, going to play the praise response this morning, make it a praise response. Continue to just, even if you don't sing, that's okay. Just continue to examine your heart. And ask yourself hard questions about what you've heard today. And ask the Lord to return you to the fear of the Lord, to unite your heart to fear his name. You know you. I don't know you. I don't know the secrets of your heart. But it's time to return to the Lord so that he can rain down grace on us. Amen. We could have our communion servants come and help us to uh, serve at the Lord's table. Um, I just want to encourage you that like, um, as we always do at, the, at this time of our service every week, that this, this, if you need a reason to to tremble before the Lord. Um, this is it. This is every week, this reminder, this renewal of the covenant, this connection that the Holy Spirit makes between us spiritually and the risen body of our Lord Jesus Christ. There's an old, uh, there's an old song that we sung years and years ago, um, called, Were You There? And the song had these words in it. Were you there when they crucified my Lord? And then, after repeating that line a couple times, it says, Sometimes it causes me to tremble, tremble, tremble. And I think almost in shame how often I've come to this table, just casually, just a part of our liturgy. But I want to be shaken again in the fear of the Lord to the magnificence, the majesty of what Christ has done in living a perfectly obedient life. And yet... In his perfect obedience, he also took all of the weight of God's wrath for a sinner like me. What an amazing reality to ponder for just a moment. So I want to encourage you to, to as you're in line, as you're coming forward, to consider those things. If you're here and you were one of the people I addressed in the, in the beginning of the message who do not know Christ, who have not uh, declared your, um, uh, uh, you know, your discipleship, uh, your, your trust in Christ, repented of your sins, believe the gospel, then I just want to encourage you to stay right where you are, not because we're trying to not share with you or withhold something from you. This would mean absolutely nothing to you. This is a sign of our covenant, just like my wedding ring is a sign of a covenant between uh, me and my wife. I could give it to you, and you could wear it, but would have no symbolic significance to you whatsoever. This is the same way. So, But if you're here and you're in that position, if you need to to hear the story, the, the, the plea to believe the gospel, come see Pastor Gabriel, come see myself after the service. We would love 
More than anything, more than just being here this morning, we'd love to get the chance to talk to you. Um, but know this, that we're praying for you, that you will, you will um, believe the gospel, that you'll repent of your sins, and you'll follow Jesus in the fear of the Lord all the days of your life. For the rest of you, come and receive these elements. Take them back to your seat, and we'll share them together in just a moment. The Apostle Paul writing to the Corinthians, says in 1 Corinthians eleven twenty three, For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, on the night when he was betrayed, took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it. And he said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me, as we take of the bread together. In the same way, after supper, he took the cup, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat of this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Let's take the cup together. Now let's thank the Lord for what he's done. Jesus, thank you so much. That The Bible tells us in Isaiah that you would live in wisdom and Knowledge and that your delight would be in the fear of the Lord. Thank you for your transforming work within us by your blood and your broken body and the indwelling of the Holy Spirit to make us also delight in the fear of the Lord. We thank you for this in Jesus' name. Amen. If you would place your hands in a receiving position, I just want to speak this benediction uh, over you. For as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is his steadfast love toward those who fear him. As far as the east is from the west, so far does he remove our transgressions from us. As a father shows compassion to his children, so the Lord shows compassion to those who fear him. In the name of the Father, in the name of the Son, in the name of the Holy Spirit, amen. You're dismissed.